Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, guest host Dr. Sarah Wise talks with Dr. Matthew Geltzeiler and Dr. Kara Detweiler about their article, Opioid Use After Endoscopic Skull Base Surgery, a Descriptive, Prospective, Longitudinal Cohort Study. Welcome to this edition of Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your host for this episode, Dr. Sarah Weiss from Atlanta, Georgia. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Matthew Geltzeiler and Dr. Kara Detweiler from the Oregon Health and Science University in Portland. And we'll be discussing their recent IFAR publication, Opioid Use After Endoscopic Skull-Based Surgery, a Descriptive Prospective Longitudinal Cohort Study. So welcome, Matt and Kara, and congratulations to you and your co-authors on the paper. So I think we're all aware that the opioid crisis is a major concern in the United States. I actually saw a recent report by the American Medical Association that every state in the US has reported a spike or increase in overdose deaths or other problems related to opioids during the COVID pandemic. The American Academy of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery published a clinical practice guideline on opioid prescribing after common otolaryngology procedures in April, 2021. And in rhinology, this topic has been taken up by the American Rhinologic Society Quality Improvement Committee. You also note in your paper that polling demonstrates that the public assigns most of the blame for the opioid crisis to physicians who inappropriately prescribe opioids, along with individuals who sell prescription pain medication illegally. And we know that the perioperative period is often a point of first opioid exposure. So with all that said, what made you all interested in taking on this topic as it relates to endoscopic skull-based surgery? Well, we had a really excellent resident, um, Brian Scott, who was really interested in pain. And so this project is actually part of a much broader study investigating all types of endoscopic surgery. So one focus was um, endoscopic skull-based surgery, Uh, because there wasn't that much in the literature about pain and outcomes after that. And then also we've studied using the same methodology, um, HHT and endoscopic sinus surgery. So we just really wanted to be very broad um, in our look at our patients and take a very broad look at all the types of surgery that we do and get an idea of what was going on. Excellent. Can you tell us a little bit about the methodology that you used in this paper and maybe a general summary of the results? Sure. So what we did, I mean, one nice thing about endoscopic skull-based surgery is the data initially to collect it, they're all inpatients. So it's very clear to how we can collect that data on exact opiate use. And so really what we did when patients enrolled, we collected a bunch of data, their demographics. We also collected um, some baseline anxiety and depression screens because that was something we're also interested in looking at. Um, as well as any you know, prior history of opiate use, any headache history, and a, a lot of other factors that we thought might be um, associated with opiate use afterwards. And then while they were inpatient, we were able to track their opiate use very closely from the medical record. And then when they were discharged, um, we called them every 48 hours just to sort of check what they had taken in the last 48 hours, as well as their pain scores and not just the opiate use that they had used, but are they using anything else um, for for pain such as acetaminophen or ibuprofen? You know, I think in terms of results, I don't know if you wanna talk a little bit about that, Matt. Sure, yeah. Our results kind of showed that 
there, so there was a, a huge range of opiate consumption across all the different patients. As we would expect over the course of time, the amount of opiates people use decreased. And there seemed to be an inflection point at about one week where patients' opiate consumption pretty significantly dropped. Patients with headaches, uh, depression, anxiety, and younger age all use opiates for longer. And patients with uh, headaches and depression also use statistically more opiates um, than patients without those um, comorbidities. So I'm particularly interested in the findings associated with headache disorders. This seems to be a significant predictor for some of the concerning factors around opioid use, like higher total consumption and longer duration of use, perhaps not as predictable or obvious as the association with depression or anxiety or a history of illicit drug use. So I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about the headache factor some more. What are your thoughts about the reasons for the association? I was also wondering if you had discussed this with any neurology colleagues or headache specialists to potentially understand some of the pathophysiology that might underlie the association. Sure, yeah. So headaches as it relates to pituitary uh, and skull-based surgery is challenging because a lot of patients have headaches from their underlying pathology. Patients with a pre-existing headache condition, it's hard to know, is that an independent headache disorder or is that secondary to their underlying pathology? And that sort of, those nuances can be really hard to tease out because a lot of times the skull-based pathologies, we have no idea how long they've been present for in some of these patients. It could have been present for years. What we did see was that patients with underlying headache disorders definitely took more opiates and they took it for longer. And patients that specifically used opiates to treat their headaches prior also took more opiates afterwards, which is unsurprising. We definitely have great relationships with our neurologists. We have a dedicated headache clinic that we end up sending a lot of our patients to on both the rhinology and the scolbis side, but we did not specifically employ any of the headache medications that um, they would be given in that clinic uh, to any patients within the study population. Usually, as you saw from the results, most patients ended up getting off of opiates for treating their headaches at some point. So we didn't specifically start any other headache medications other than NSAIDs uh, in this patient population. Yeah, I think it, it is interesting and very difficult to kind of parse out in this particular population, given the potential for them presenting with headache, potentially as a symptom of their underlying disease that they're having surgery for. And I think it is like your suggestion to work with neurology is a really great one because if we know who these patients are going into surgery and we have excellent headache neurologists at OHSU, we're very lucky in that way. So we certainly could target those patients and send them to neurology beforehand. All right. I also wanted to talk a bit about some of the differences between opioid use in endoscopic skull-based surgery versus endoscopic sinus surgery. There have been several previous publications looking at postoperative pain management and opioid use after sinus surgery. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about how this differs from the endoscopic skull-based surgery population. The biggest thing is that patients take substantially more opiates after skull-based surgery. So for endoscopic sinus surgery, um, I usually tell patients that 
they should expect to take pain pill for a couple of days. And I think most of the literature kind of bears on out just a few days after surgery at most. Whereas in after endoscopic skull based surgery, there is um, a much longer duration and overall amount of opiates that are taken. And that was what in our results, we found that was really independent of any intraoperative technique. So whether or not they had pituitary surgery, cellular pathology, or they had a larger anterior craniofacial resection, regardless on if they had Doyle splints placed afterwards, if they had a nasal septal flap, kind of all of the nuances of technique, none of them were associated with a significantly longer need for opiates. And that's kind of different where as in traditional sinus surgery, if people get a concurrent septoplasty or septorhinoplasty, that definitely increases their amount of opiates that they're going to require. So to me, the biggest thing I try to talk to the residents about is the patients are going to have a different postoperative experience than when they get sinus surgery. But obviously we're keeping them inpatient and treating them very differently. Right. I, yeah. I think one of the things that um, I've learned from taking care of both of these populations is they are very different. And, you know, I, I think there is a, a little bit of a misconception perhaps in the sinus surgery and septoplasty patient population that it's going to be an extremely painful experience. A lot of times I think preoperative counseling can be helpful in the sinus surgery or nasal surgery population to kind of set expectations up front that it's not really been shown to be particularly painful. I agree some studies have shown that the addition of septoplasty will add some, you know, additional pain to the procedure, but even so it's, um, it does not seem to be as painful for patients as undergoing the skull-based procedures. I, I do think that uh, whether it's the additional dissection involved, the involvement of, you know, dural dissection, perhaps um, the different way that the mucosa is treated during the surgery, all of those sorts of things I think may play into it. And then I think also depending on the patient, the post-operative sort of crusting and need for debridements and that, that sort of aspect may add some as well. I do think it's important that, that even though we're using a transnasal conduit for both of these surgeries, they are, you know, different uh, patient populations overall. Yeah, it's, it was interesting because I personally find that patients that get a septal flap have more issues post-op with crusting and just discomfort overall. And I was surprised that that didn't bear itself out in, the, in our overall numbers. Obviously, as I'm sure we'll get to, the overall patient number in our study was small. That was partially due because the study time hit right when the pandemic, right <laughs> when the pandemic hit. But regardless... I'm curious if, you know, this was studied in a larger context with multiple institutions across the country, if we would see a slight variation in some of those findings. Right. No, I mean, I, I think your, your point is well taken. Since you, you brought up the size of the study, do you want to address any other 
findings that you anticipate you would see in a larger group? I think there were a lot of surgical nuances that we looked at and our total N was the vast majority of patients were upseller pathology, but at our institution and across the country, obviously there are a large volume of much more complex skull-based pathologies that are tackled from an endoscopic approach. And so I would wonder how many of those surgical nuances would shake out as actually being significant like in terms of the difference in pain for of a transclival approach or an endoscopic craniofacial resection versus a pituitary surgery. In my experience, those are very different patient experiences overall. Our cohort volume was also small. We thankfully didn't have any complications, like no postoperative leaks or anything like that. But with a high enough end, we would start to also see if patients who ended up having a leak or getting meningitis or any of the other complications, how those things factored into their overall pain. Sure. I, I think those are very good points. Would you anticipate that with a larger group, you would maintain the significant findings of the pre-existing headache disorder, depression, anxiety, and all of those things that were significant findings? We have looked at anxieties, not particular to the study, but the other part of it that I alluded to before in inflammatory disease, which has a much larger N. And we are finding an association between anxiety, not depression, just anxiety and opiate use afterwards. So I would wonder if the same might be true for this patient population, but I don't, I don't know. And in terms of headache, I would guess that that might be a real finding, just looking at some of the patients that I've seen after these procedures. Sure. Finally, I'd like for you to touch on some of the non-narcotic options for pain control in this endoscopic skull-based surgery population. You do mention the use of NSAIDs and acetaminophen in your paper, and certainly, you know, feel free to, to discuss these. Given the higher opioid consumption in the endoscopic skull-based surgery group compared to, you know, what we tend to know about endoscopic sinus surgery. I'm also interested if you would consider any non-pharmacologic pain management adjuncts in the future, like breathing techniques, meditation, massage, hypnosis, acupuncture, cold packs. A quick internet search provides a huge list, you know, seemingly endless options for pain management that don't involve opioids or any drugs at all. So love it if you could just kind of touch on some of these non-opioid and then potentially non-pharmacologic options. Sure, yeah. The patients at our specific institution are primarily managed in combination with ENT and neurosurgery, and they're on the neurosurgical service generally. And we have a team of awesome physician's assistants who um, are the people who are generally placing the orders with many, many years of experience. Um, we're very fortunate. In, in this study, we let them prescribe the acetaminophen and ibuprofen um, as they felt was safe. Most of the attendings that are doing this type of surgery here are obviously totally fine with Tylenol and are generally fine with ibuprofen um, starting a day or so after surgery. And you can see by our results that there was a very large amount of heterogeneity in terms of exactly by what was prescribed for different people. And we didn't actually see any significant difference in opiate consumption, depending on the amount of non-opiate analgesics that were used in the inpatient setting. 
where it did seem to make more of a difference was in the outpatient setting, where there was a statistically significant decrease in the amount of opiates people used if they were using Tylenol and ibuprofen as an adjunct. So we definitely encourage that in all of the patients. When the patients are discharged, they're educated both by the nurses and it's also written in their paperwork. And we try to encourage them to use these over-the-counter pain medications, but we think that by prescribing them, even though they're also available over the counter, that the patients may be more encouraged to use them. So we've started to make sure that everyone goes home with a prescription for Tylenol and also ibuprofen, unless it's otherwise contraindicated in the patients. And hopefully that will decrease the overall amount of narcotic uses by the patients. Regarding the non-pharmacologic, that's not something that we've started using, given how bad people's nasal obstruction is before the first debridement, it would be interesting to try to watch them do breathing exercises. <laughs> the mind-body connection is very much a real thing. And if there's any non-pharmacologic techniques that are found to be efficacious, I would certainly be open to trying them in our patient population. Yeah, I think as we learn more about this group, it may be something where, uh, you know, if you know that someone is coming in with these significant predictors, headache, depression, or anxiety, or, you know, those sorts of things, it may be an interesting aspect to look at if, you know, if some of these non-pharmacologic techniques might be employed in those particular patients to see if that potentially reduced their opioid consumption in the future. I feel like the Portland population would be very accepting of that. It's very like a holistic medicine type of community. And so we definitely should look into that. Any other comments that you all have or anything else you'd like to share about this work um, before we close this podcast out? The only other thing I think that we were surprised about, or maybe we weren't surprised, but it it was significant to us is how people disposed of or maybe more likely did not dispose of um, their excess opiate. We really think that is an area for counseling because it's not, you know, these patients were given instructions on where they could dispose of it, but not necessarily always reinforced verbally by us preoperatively or postoperatively. So I, I do think that it is a huge area that we could improve. I think the other thing that Matt and I had talked about is trying to maybe standardize how much narcotics we send people home with. Because if typically we think 30 tablets of oxycodone is the right amount, but even so looking at this study, we saw that there was a huge amount of excess that was never used that we were responsible for prescribing and is out there to be stolen, to be used, to be sold, to be driving people to be addicted to narcotics. So I think it is it did reinforce for us our role in the opioid epidemic and being kind of good stewards of that. I think that's an excellent point. Uh, I was just going to say we've actually done that in our sinus surgery practice after studying it as sort of a quality initiative. And we now have standardized prescribing practices for post endoscopic sinus surgery pain prescriptions which involves substantially fewer pills than we were prescribing previously. So I think really taking an assessment of your practice and your prescribing patterns and evaluating, you know, what patients truly need can be very helpful. So that's a great point. It's interesting. We tended to overshoot by about 20 to 25 pills, which is a lot. 
like I was mentioning earlier, like at a week, there seems to be an inflection where patients pain really drops significantly. Just trying to see when the patient's discharging, because some people only spend a couple days while other people stay longer, depending on what's going on with them medically. Trying to understand which patient you're looking at in terms of the underlying comorbidities, seeing how much are they going to need to get them out to about a week if they're leaving before then, which most do. And then also not being afraid to use NSAIDs in conjunction, I think are my main takeaways. We didn't have given our, the vast majority were seller patients, like we said, but we didn't have any issues with using any type of ibuprofen or Ocitorilac or anything when they were an inpatient. And then certainly none as an outpatient, either epistaxis or intracranial bleeds or anything to that effect. So it's something that, and we've been doing that for years and years and years and really have not had any issues. So those were my main takeaways. That is a fantastic point as well. And I think something that that we could all probably do a bit better. Thank you so much for joining me, Matt and Kara. This has been an excellent discussion. And again, congratulations to you and your colleagues on your publication. And thank you, of course, to our Scope It Out listeners. This is Sarah Wise for Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm signing off for now and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast are those of podcast hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or the sponsors.